When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Recently in American politics, two members of the Republican Party have announced that they will not run for re-election, Jeff Flake of Arizona and Senator Bob Corker of Tennessee. They're both senators, actually. Flake said he couldn't abide by a party which supported Donald Trump. Corker of Tennessee said he didn't want to be thinking about getting re-elected when there was so much work he should do. His re-election would have been ugly and brutal with the president targeting him as well as the president's former chief strategist, Steve Bannon. Corker didn't want to be so timid, worried about re-election. He wanted to do his job. Their departures mark a success for the president in remaking his party in his image. He is purging the ranks. It's not a concerted effort to campaign against the members of his own party, but rather a collateral effect of the way the president is running in office or participating in his office or running his office. Indeed, the one race, actually, in which the president did weigh in, his candidate lost. But he lost to the one backed by former chief strategist Steve Bannon. That was the Alabama race in which Roy Moore beat Luther Strange. Bannon, the president's former chief strategist and still outside advisor, is on the hunt for establishment Republicans. It's a season of war against a GOP establishment. If Bannon has his way, all the corporatist, globalist, administrative, state-loving, swamp-dwelling, adjective-attracting members of the Republican Party will be banished by catapult or something worse. This effort to remake the party in Donald Trump's image, to pursue the Trump agenda, whatever it may be, nationalist, populist, insular, it reminded me and got me thinking about the election of 1938, when FDR tried to purge the conservative members of his own Democratic Party. On June 24, 1938, Franklin Roosevelt gave one of his famous fireside chats. It was June and therefore a crazy time for a fireside chat in the sweltering heat of Washington. Fortunately, in 1938, Twitter didn't exist, and so no one could make that dumb joke. But no jokes are dumb here in the whistle-stop bubble because when I actually listened to the speech instead of reading the typed pages in PDF form, I heard the dulcet tones of FDR saying this. My friends, the American public and the American newspapers are certainly creatures of habit. This is one of the warmest evenings that I have ever felt in Washington, D.C. And yet this talk tonight will be referred to as a fireside talk. A brazen attack on the press. But then the president got to the heart of things. Our government, happily, is a democracy. As part of the democratic process, your president is again taking an opportunity to report on the progress of national affairs, to report to the real rulers of this country, the voting public. The president had called the nation to attention to render a verdict on the 75th Congress. One of the things that he mentioned right off the top was something Congress had left undone, and that was, quote, to provide more business-like machinery for running the executive branch of the government. What did this mean? 
Well, this might seem strange in the age when the White House is the most powerful force in government by a long shot, that the president would be waiting on anything from Congress that had to do with the running of the executive branch of government. But this was an earlier time, that is to say, before the Second World War and the Cold War allowed presidents to greatly expand the executive branch. What FDR was calling for, or had called for, in 1937 and 38 was uh, for Congress to pass the Reorganization Act, which is one of the sexiest sounding pieces of legislation I ever did hear. The Reorganization Act was the result of, or the legislative embodiment of the famous Brownlow Committee, the 1937 committee put together by FDR to get him some administrative help in the office. It was the first major planned reorganization of the executive branch since 1787. That's 150 years. You'll remember that I've referred to the Brownlow report before. It's the one that says the president needs help. Okay. But that's sometimes where the analysis of the Brownlow report stops. And there's so much more to the Brownlow report. And that, friends, is what you are about to be told in this podcast. But first, the reason Brownlow and the Reorganization Act are so important, what elevates our story beyond merely being a political act of purging so that FDR could get things he wanted through, was that the purge and the reason for it in 1938 are about a fundamental struggle in American politics. It's about power and who has it and why they have to share it. FDR was trying to lock in more power for himself with the Reorganization Act so that he could act with the energy he thought the chief executive should have. That Hamilton, obviously, in the, in, in the Federalist Papers, talks about this fight, though, is about setting the structural conditions for the presidency here in this Reorganization Act fight that comes out of the Brownlow report. And the purge by FDR is a story about the power to persuade, for sure, or not persuade, as the case may be. But it's really about this debate over having structural reform so that you have structures in place that give the president power to do what the president wants and what the president thinks is in the interest of the country. If you've got that power, you've got that structure, then when you look at the tools available to a president, you don't have to go persuading. You just go doing. The grammar of that previous sentence, courtesy of Mrs. Burke's seventh grade English class. Now, students, find all the errors within. The presidency and the executive branch were so weak back in 1938 that FDR had to get this committee to come up with the arguments for why these changes should be made. And then he had to get approval from Congress to get authority to hire additional staff and reorganize the executive branch. He basically had to go begging to Congress. Now, this fight about the purge and the fact that it's about more than simply just trying to get more members on his team, the fact that it goes to the heart of power sharing in the democratic system, I thought was a fresh insight from your Whistle Stop correspondent. But then I started reading the book Roosevelt's Purge by Susan Dunn. You you may remember Professor Susan Dunn. Oh, no, you don't remember or you're lying. But if you did, you would remember her from our 1940 Wilkie and FDR episode of Whistle Stop. And I think I also referred to a book she wrote uh, about the election of 1800. Anyway, we're not done with her yet. Dunn opens her book on this 1938 purge by FDR with a press release from the president, from FDR. And here we're quoting from Dunn's work. While the president slept, his appointment secretary, Marvin McIntyre, was still working, a former newspaper man from Kentucky whose friendship with Roosevelt went back 20 years. McIntyre sent out word to the reporters covering the president in Georgia that he had breaking news. Most of the reporters were still awake, playing bridge or ping pong, or attending a carnival in nearby Manchester. 
When they assembled, McIntyre handed out copies of a statement written by the president himself. Here's the president's statement. A. I have no inclination to be a dictator. B. I have none of the qualifications which would make me a successful dictator. C. I have too much historical background and too much knowledge of existing dictatorships to make me desire any form of dictatorship for a democracy like the United States of America. Now, the reason that FDR had to put out that such a statement about dictatorship and the reason that it was news worthy enough to interrupt the carnival attendees in nearby Manchester was that the reaction to his reorganization act was that fierce. The press and the critics had responded to the reorganization act with cries of dictator. Now, they had reason to fear beyond the reorganization act itself, which we'll get to in a second. They had reason to fear that the the dictator thing was already in the water. Why? Because FDR had just won a resounding, whomping, thundering, get out the big bass drum victory in 1936. And then he just tried to reshape the Supreme Court in his image with the famous court packing scheme itself, an attempt to gain more control for the executive by stealing power from the judiciary. So FDR wanted to increase the number of judges so that the programs he had tried to push through as part of the New Deal wouldn't be declared unconstitutional. Okay, now back to the Brownlow Committee and the administrative reorganization. Brownlow makes 37 recommendations, basically expand the presidential staff, integrate agencies, create cabinet departments, and then some budget modernization. Sounds reasonable, right? Hoover had, in fact, done an analysis of the executive branch in 1937, not to be confused with Hoover's second analysis of the executive branch, which we talked about in the last episode, which was done in 1955, the one that suggested the creation of a vice president for administration. In Hoover's assessment of the administration, he identified lots of these problems, too. Just the idea that basically it was totally inefficient. I mean, it hadn't been reorganized in 150 years. And the original organization written into the foundation and formation of the American system, there is no organization. There's no manual. There was, anyway. So the Brownlow Committee comes out, the legislation locking in its um, its reforms is put forward and it's immediately blocked or, or immediately criticized by the conservatives, many, many of them who are in FDR's own party, who thought that basically what it was requesting was to give too much power to the president. I am not willing In the search for efficient management to establish one-man rule in this country, said Senator Burke from Nebraska in responding to this. Stepping back a second, the centerpiece of the New Deal, the National Industrial Recovery Act, had been declared unconstitutional. That was part of why the court packing scheme was an effort to have things be declared constitutional and no longer unconstitutional. But that failed. So now Roosevelt was looking for another workaround. He was trying to rewire the executive branch to allow the kind of experimentation through executive branch agencies that would allow the next reforms to be put in place. And why did we need reforms? Well, there was the the original Great Depression, of course, that was still being reacted to. But then there was a kind of um, aftershock recession in 1937. So FDR was looking for fast ways to respond to that recession of 37-38. So in this fight against Roosevelt and his reorganization, which people saw as a power grab, Father Charles Coughlin, the Rush Limbaugh of his day, and this will start to sound very familiar and modern to you, mobilized public opinion against FDR and asked people to contact their representatives in Washington to fight against the evils of concentration in a collectivist government. Here is the father from a documentary. There is no need of communizing all the factories and the fields and the forests and the mines under a new kind of God made of flesh 
and blood and clay and hatred. When men become so prideful that they believe their destiny is to rewrite the eternal law of God, it's time for their fellow citizens to rise up in their wrath and through the agency of ballots and not bullets to relegate them to the pages of the past. Also fighting FDR and the National Committee to uphold constitutional government. Also known as the Nikug, a relic of that barren period before activists came up with cutesy acronyms. The National Committee to Uphold Constitutional Government worked against this reorganization plan just as it had the court packing scheme the year before. In April 1938, 100 protesters dressed as Paul Revere paraded up Pennsylvania Avenue waving banners that denounced one-man rule. 330,000 telegrams protesting the bill arrived in Congress. Remember, this is a bill about presidential administrative management. This is not health care or taxes or anything else. This is a fight over the shared powers of the presidency. And yet, there is all of this passion, at least in the grassroots. Kind of thing doesn't happen today. Anyway... Hitler, uh, FDR was was equated with Hitler and Mussolini and Stalin. And by the way, Hitler was just in, had just invaded Austria. So this is fresh Hitler, you know. So a book published at the time had the headline Roosevelt, dictator or Democrat. The original Reorganization Act comes up for a vote in Congress. Seventy six Democrats in the Senate, and it passes forty eight to forty two. Squeaker, I should say, just to set the stakes for this vote in the Congress, advisor Jim Farley, the president's advisor, Jim Farley, who we'll talk about in a a minute, put the stakes for the House vote in this perspective. He said, if this thing doesn't go through the House, you're going to lose control of the party. Uh, Harold Ickes, secretary of the interior, told FDR that he should, if he loses in in the House after having passed through the Senate, he should, quote, pack his bags and move away from Washington. Those stories are all from Dunn's book. So when the House comes to a vote, the Democratic leader, Sam Rayburn, put the stakes in this context as he called for Democratic Party unity. He urged the members of the House not to deliver a, quote, lethal blow to FDR and warned them against sending Americans, quote, the message that tonight Democrats voting with Republicans have said in effect that our president is no longer the leader of this country. The bill ultimately died in the House. Congressman John O'Connor of New York, who had fought against the bill, was elated. And another member of the House rushed over to O'Connor, raised his arm and said, he's our leader. He's our leader. The next day, headline in the Chicago Tribune, which liked to kick FDR in the shins every day, uh, the headline was, Kill Dictator Bill. So that's what had Roosevelt unhappy with the pace of things and uh, and what he was talking about there in this June uh, 1938 fireside chat. This chat was the solution to that defeat and the defeat of the court packing. But really, the more immediate uh, proximate cause, as we say, is the defeat of the administrative reorganization bill. And the solution that FDR hit upon was to basically remove the Democrats who were getting in his way by promoting liberal candidates over conservative Democratic candidates in primaries. And here is uh, the president. Assuming the mental capacity of all the candidates, the important question which it seems to me the primary voter must ask is this. To which of these general schools of thought does the candidate belong? As president of the United States, I am not asking the voters of the country to vote for Democrats next November as opposed to Republicans or members of any other party. 
nor am I as president taking part in Democratic primaries. As the head of the Democratic Party, however, charged with the responsibility of carrying out the definitely liberal declaration of principles set forth in the 1936 Democratic platform, I feel that I have every right to speak in those few instances where there may be a clear-cut issue between candidates for a Democratic nomination involving these principles or involving a clear misuse of my own name. It was a public appeal to voters to defeat conservative Democrats. What FDR was trying to do is make the Democrats more uniformly liberal while leaving the Republicans as the conservative party. And you'll you'll remember at this point in time, there are a lot of liberals and conservatives in both parties. Roosevelt's pitch was that the parties were too much alike, and that was leading to bad government. An election cannot give a country a firm sense of direction. If it has two or more national parties, which merely have different names, but are as alike in their principles and aims as peas in the same pod. All presidents feel constrained by the objects put in their way by the Constitution. Such roadblocks include the press, the Congress, and the courts. Also, the party. To get around these constraints, presidents try to come up with clever stratagems, court packings, and in this case, a purge. So what Roosevelt was doing was no different than what Donald Trump is trying to do today, getting around those meddlesome cloggings uh, that are put there either by the Constitution, parties weren't put there by the Constitution, or that have grown up out of the development of the American system. So when Tennessee Senator Bob Corker or Senator Jeff Flake speak out, the president uses the most immediate tool at hand, not a fireside chat, but Twitter, and he can give them a bop right on the head. I'm able to go bing, 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 and I take care of it. The other way, I'd never be able to get the word out. During a luncheon this year with Republican senators during the failed health care legislative push, the president issued a veiled threat that he would campaign against Republicans who stood in the way of his agenda. Now, Trump likes to attack these candidates by name. FDR wasn't doing that in his fireside chat, but soon he would hit the road to put pressure directly on the candidates. Here's how political advisor James Farley described it from the book Roosevelt's Purge by Susan Dunn. Here's Dunn. Outwardly, Roosevelt appeared as confident and captivating as ever, but inwardly, Jim Farley noted, he was seething at the swaggering politicians who had double-crossed him for weeks and months after the court-packing debacle. Wrote Farley, I found him fuming against the members of his own party. Roosevelt had been completely humiliated. In meetings with congressmen, the president let it be known that those who had opposed him had better be on guard. I've got them on the run, Jim. The president gloated to Farley. They have no idea what's going to happen and are beginning to worry. They'll be sorry yet. Boss, you're a hard man, Farley replied. I hope you never get angry at me. Farley was the chairman of the Democratic Party and a New York Irish political boss who uh, had been responsible essentially for FDR's rise in New York. Nearly bald with only enough hair on the sides of his head to require two swipes of the brush, he was the seamstress who had stitched together the New Deal coalition of Catholics, labor unions, African-Americans, and farmers. He knew his stuff, and his job was to work with local Democratic committees while the president was trying to push his agenda through. 
And what did you what did you do in that those times? What did what was Farley's job in working with these local committees? Well, he pushed patronage jobs to keep the party intact. Local committees controlled the, the power of the party. And so Farley knew intimately about how you were supposed to work. I get your guy Joe from South Carolina, a job in the postmaster's office. That meant the senator from South Carolina was hopefully going to be on the team. But now FDR was breaking those rules. He was essentially saying those local parties you've been tending and working and through the old system where the local parties have all the control, I'm going to bust through that. I'm going to step in on those on those local parties with my national political power as head of the Democratic Party uh, and undo whatever it is that they want in terms of voting Democrats to Congress. Farley told the president he wouldn't support the purge because of this big footing. And this ultimately leads to a break between FDR and Farley. Um, Farley leaves and ultimately then goes and becomes the successful chairman of Coca-Cola. Sid Milkus, a political scientist from UVA, expands on this separation of powers opposition to the president. The idea that presidents weren't supposed to meddle in congressional races. And this is from his book, uh, The Presidents and the Parties. A cardinal political creed in the United States demanded that presidents keep out of local matters. Underlying this commitment to a decentralized party politics was the constitutional principle of division and separation of powers. Arguably, a president's interference in primary campaigns reflected an unhealthy desire to control Congress. To defeat those members of his party who disagreed with him and secure the election of others who agreed with him thus undermining the independence of the legislature necessary to uphold American constitutional government. Continuing here with Milkus, it was incompatible with an interpretation of the Constitution that long had inhibited chief executives from connecting their ambitions too centrally to their party in Congress. So that is the political science explanation for this separation of powers argument being made by Roosevelt's critics. And this point shows up in the paper. Here is some uh, polling that was done about the president's reorganizational plan. And this is a, a piece talking about the respondents who were against it. Respondents in the poll were, quote, sincerely fearful of the consequences to the republic of making Congress an annex of the presidency, as they were fearful of the Supreme Court enlargement bill for the same reason. These independents and republicans, the piece is talking here about the independents and, and republicans in the poll, Think it best to help defeat any Democrat who pledges 100% support to Mr. Roosevelt. And just to bring it into the current situation, that 100% fealty to the president is exactly what Steve Bannon and the president are calling for in the members they want to replace with any of those fussy uh, senators who believe in voting their conscience. In the summer of 1938, Roosevelt boarded a 10-car train for a trip through the South, Kentucky, Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Texas. He pounded conservative Democrats and lifted up the liberals. In August, he campaigned in Barnesville, Georgia, arguing that only federally directed policies could leaven the region's social and economic conditions. Unfortunately, we can't, we don't have the recording of FDR, so you're just going to have to listen to me reading about uh, what he said. To carry out my responsibility as president, it is clear that if there is to be success in our government, there ought to be cooperation between members of my own party and myself. Cooperation, in other words, within the majority party between one branch of government, the legislative branch, and the head of the other branch, the executive. FDR went on a little bit later in his speech. 
Translating that into more intimate terms, it means that if people of the state of Georgia, remember he's talking in Georgia, want definite action in Congress of the United States, they must send to that Congress senators and representatives who are willing to stand up and fight night and day for federal statutes drawn to meet actual needs. Not something that serves merely to gloss over the evils of the moment for the time being, but laws with teeth in them, which go to the root of the problem, teeth into root, which remove inequities, raise the standards, and over a period of years give constant improvement to the conditions of human life in this state. Sitting there at the event was Senator Walter George of Georgia, that's George of Georgia, and his wife Georgina of Georgia, and their two kids, Georgia Kaya and Georgia Kayanat. The incumbent, Walter George, was this elvish-looking fellow that FDR praised for his intelligence and honor, but then he explained he couldn't vote for him. He also explained that he couldn't vote for Governor George Talmadge of Georgia, who was also running. And here's what here's, here was FDR's reasoning about that. This is about Talmadge. His attitude towards me and towards other members of the government in 1935 and 1936 concerns me not at all. But in those years and in this year, I have read so many of his proposals, so many of his promises, so many of his panaceas, that I am very certain in my own mind that his election would contribute very little to practical progress in government. That is all I can say about him. Then FDR put in the plug for Lawrence Camp. He is the liberal running in this Democratic primary in Georgia. On this train trip, FDR also campaigned against Cotton Ed Smith in South Carolina, Millard Tidings of Maryland, and Congressman John O'Connor of New York. You'll remember O'Connor on the floor of the House that day. They defeated the, the uh, administrative plan for uh, federal branch reorganization. So this purge didn't go well. In South Carolina, the Chicago Daily Tribune, you remember they don't like FDR, weighed in after the purge was announced and as FDR was rocketing through the South during the summer with a story that was written by the wonderfully bylined Chelsea Manley. The story was uh, rendering a verdict on some of the early races, and the headline read, Two purge losses bring gloom to Roosevelt AIDS. Yes, men, bite dust in primaries. And here's a little bit from the top of that piece. An all-pervading gloom hovered over the White House today as the news ticker in the executive offices brought the latest returns from yesterday's primaries in South Carolina and California. The president personally had interfered in both primaries, gambling his political prestige, and in both states, the Democratic voters had repudiated his intervention. Here's the headline of the the Los Angeles Times when George wins in Georgia. Senator George victory decisive. Ex-Governor Talmadge, fiery Roosevelt critic, runs second. You'll note that the person who ran third was the one Roosevelt was actually backing. President Roosevelt's campaign for political execution of lawmakers he deems out of step with the New Deal received another setback today with renomination of veteran Senator George in the Georgia Democratic primary. Georgina must have been pleased. On to Maryland. August 23rd, Senator Tidings of Maryland gave his own radio address response to the president's radio address response and the president's campaigning in his state against him. And unlike other FDR targets who'd been more oblique in their response to the president, Tidings was more straightforward. Here's an account of his radio address. Mr. Tidings stated his position and the issue as follows. As a representative of Maryland in the Senate, he reserves the right to judge for himself whether the administration is carrying out the platform 
That would be the Democratic platform. He is responsible to his own electorate and not to the administration. And the issue and the issue presented by the purge then becomes whether a Maryland senator's vote is to be personal property of the party leader or the voters of Maryland. If the Democratic voters want to turn over their senatorship to Mr. Roosevelt as his personal property, guaranteeing an affirmative vote on whatever he may propose, they will do it with full knowledge of what they are doing. They can reject Mr. Tidings, who refuses to make such a guarantee, and nominate Representative Lewis, who has agreed to make it. The whole electorate of Maryland can then in November ratify or repudiate the decision of the Democratic majority. This Tidings fellow was quite a uh, quite an energetic Joe. Here's the New York Times, August 22nd. Headline, Tidings, the Fighting Purge, Assails Federal Activity, Tells of Vote Terrorism. Asks voter revolt, calls upon Maryland to rebuke president for, quote, interference, unquote. Election of, quote, rubber stamps, unquote, he says, will mean people are no longer free. <laughs> so those are the stakes in Maryland. Now, a little polling. Uh, this is from early September. in, uh, And this is written by Dr. George Gallup. So when we talk about Gallup polling, this is who uh, this is who we're talking about. The headline of this piece in the Washington Post read conservative 57 percent, New Dealer 43. So this is polling in Maryland showing that before the actual primary, Talmadge is way up. The New Dealer, his new New Dealer opponent is in uh, bad shape. And I'll read you a little bit from this post piece. So the headline was the. Top line of the, of the poll, 5743. And then the subhead was Maryland Democrats disapprove of President Roosevelt's participation in primary campaign poll shows. And then there's a little interesting, for just for those of you who care about polls and the history of polling, and there are many of you out there, I know, from the cards and letters you've sent me. Here's how polling was talked about in 1938. The following exclusive survey of public opinion in the Maryland primary was conducted for the Washington Post and 66 other prominent papers representing all shades of editorial policy, 66. Today's Institute survey is one of a series of on Roosevelt's quote-unquote purge in South Carolina, Maryland, and Georgia. Dr. George Gallup, the director of American Institute of Public Opinion, writes as follows. As the battle between New Dealers and conservative Democrats heads for another showdown in the Maryland primary Monday, a final survey by the American Institute of Public Opinion finds conservative Senator Millard E. Tidings leading New Dealer David J. Lewis by a majority of the popular vote. Senator Tidings is holding the lead in spite of the clearly spoken opposition of President Roosevelt, who traveled this week to Maryland's eastern shore, a Tidings stronghold, to speak for Representative Lewis. The final institute survey, which was conducted after the president's visit and covered a cross-section of Democrats in all parts of the state, shows that the main outlines of the race have been largely unchanged by what the president has to say. With the primary only a matter of hours away, the survey finds the vote for the two leading candidates, Senator Tidings 59, Representative Lewis 41. Later in the piece, there was a more general assessment of the president's involvement. In today's survey, the Institute asked Maryland Democrats, did you approve of President Roosevelt's participation in the Democratic primary campaign? 60% or three voters in five said they disapproved. That was a poll of Democrats, right? This is popular, a very popular president. Still, Democrats don't want him involved in their local race. Imagine now if the president were popular, A, and then B, if he were popular, Republicans in the state saying, get out and stay out of our race, uh, out of our state. You almost have the opposite now, a very unpopular president, highly unpopular president whose own party is happy if he meddles in the state races. 
And so at the end, when tidings won, it was considered a rebuke to the president. And here we have a paper ratifying that. Maryland political conservatives are attributing the landslide Democratic primary victory of Senator Millard E. Tidings over Representative David J. Lewis to two main factors, mismanagement by the Lewis campaign and the resentment against the president's trip to the state on behalf of the defeated candidate. Well, the president kept going, and he went up to take on John O'Connor. You'll remember him from the House floor defeating that administrative act. He had been the hero for saying things like this, and this is during that debate. The fact is, there ain't going to be no dictator in this country, O'Connor had barked. Not as long as some of us have a voice and two strong hands. So O'Connor let the president have it when the president came into his district and tried to persuade the voters to vote against him. Here's the New York Times from the 20th of September. Mr. O'Connor, anti-New Deal Democrat, seeking the Republican nomination for representative as well as the Democratic renomination in today's primaries in face of the national administration's quote-unquote purge, also contended that the president has quote-unquote usurped the powers of Congress in his recent address in Canada, where he pledged the support of the United States to Canada in case of invasion. So again, you see how things have changed, right? A president can make agreements of that kind now, you might get a little squawking, but this question of separation of powers has changed so much that it's generally accepted by members of Congress who could debate this if they wanted to. It's generally accepted that the president has the war-making power and therefore the power to make those kinds of commitments. And so finally, with tidings having won, here's a piece in the New York Times explaining what the practical effect of that would be. Washington, September 18th. Senator Tidings discussing the probable legislative effects of President Roosevelt's failure to oust him and others from the Senate predicted that opponents of the government reorganization bill would be able to amend it as they wished. And so they would. The president had tried to go over the heads of the political bosses and speak to the public using his power, his popularity, to gain the political power to promote his policies and lock in a structure that was most beneficial to what he wanted to do. This was a failure for FDR, of course. Even though he was popular nationally, he couldn't overcome the structural power of the local parties. And as Stephen Skronik of Yale writes in his book, The Politics Presidents Make, liberals may have liked FDR themselves. They were quite they quite liked him. But they weren't going to, as Skronik writes, quote, intercede on his behalf against their fellow partisans and disturb the local party machinery within which they worked. That's an important point here. There is a structure... FDR is trying to smash that structure. It's the structure that Farley was fighting for, and that structure withheld. Today, we face a connection between Congress and the president where the fears of 1938 have been realized. So a vote for a senator in in 2018 will be essentially a referendum on the president. The connection between the president and the members of the Senate running under his banner is cemented. And here's just one uh, way to look at that, and that's cementing. In Reagan and Nixon's victories, when they won a state— Half of the senators from the states they won were Democrats. That meant that there was a structural incentive for those Democratic senators to work with the president because those senators knew they had constituents in their states who liked the president of the other party enough to vote for him. 50%. That number steadily climbs. And so by the time you get to the Obama years, the number of senators from the president's party in the states that the president won are up to basically up to 80%. And in 2018, will perhaps see an even greater alignment of that because you've got 10 Democratic senators who are running for re-election in states that Trump won. 
The polarization we enjoy today would delight FDR in this respect. It's very clear that there are differences between both parties. In FDR's era, Republicans and Democrats were worried that there was too much bipartisanship. It limited solutions because there could always be a coalition that blocked big, bold ideas. Coalitions that were based on local party prerogatives, based on that local party control of the system that you had in 1938 and that is gone now. And that made it hard to tackle national problems in a big way. So the idea was to replace that. This was this was FDR's idea was to replace that with a national party built around a set of big, bold ideas. And so now I'm going to read a little from Stephen Skronik just uh, about the fallout and what was what was cemented by this FDR loss, uh, which Skronik describes as a near universal drive among institutional actors to secure independence from presidential controls. So that's what he sees the president's trying to control here through the reorganization of the executive branch and the institutional actors in in both the Congress, but also the local parties are asserting their own independence, reasserting their own independence. Skronik again, once it became clear that Roosevelt's intention was less to economize than to formalize spending programs initially addressed to the emergency, the emergency being the depression. The bipartisan conservative coalition forged during the court's battle intensified its opposition. So in other words, once this became clear that this was a power grab and not just an effort to make things smoother for the executive, then the conservatives were fell into the same formation they had fallen into to fight the court packing. These changes would have provided his new regime a measure of organizational coherence and institutionalized a capacity for, for concerted action. And just as surely no organization or leader affected cared to sacrifice its own autonomy to these goals. So, the power struggle. What's striking now about the purge or quasi-purge of 2018 is that no one is hinting that tying the legislative to the executive is a bad idea. Congress has been that denuded that nobody's jumping up and saying, hey, we, we are our own people. Polling suggests that, particularly in Republican ranks, but certainly throughout the nation, people are disappointed with Congress. And so, if anything, there is this move that basically Congress needs to ratify what the president asks for. That is certainly the move in the grassroots of the Republican Party. Different, of course, than the grassroots of the Democratic Party in 1938, which was a much more closely tied organization to the local Democratic Party in the various states. In 1939, when Congress did finally take up the reorganizational bill, it was quite weak, as tidings had said it would be, to give you some sense of how much more big daddy in town Congress was at the time. The legislation in 1939, the Reorganization Act of 1939, required that any changes he be made would be subject to legislative veto if they didn't like it. If they didn't like what FDR had done to the executive branch, they could put the kibosh on it. After the 38 election, the battered president faced an energized conservative bloc. He had tried to create a liberal political movement, and instead he'd created the opposite, a conservative opposition that bedeviled him. Still, the happy warrior licked his wounds and carried on a spirit that would be, of course, tested in the great world war to come. I leave you now with a clip from December of 1938, a speech that President Roosevelt gave in North Carolina on his way back from Thanksgiving. If he was defeated, he sure didn't sound it talking to the students. You may have heard for six years that I was about to plunge the nation into war, that you and your little brothers would be sent to the bloody fields of battle in Europe, that I was driving the nation into bankruptcy, and that I breakfasted every morning on a dish 
of grilled millionaires. Actually, I am an exceedingly mild-mannered person, a practitioner of peace, both domestic and foreign, a believer in the capitalistic system, and for my breakfast, a devotee of scrambled eggs. That's it for Whistle Stop this week. Before we sign off completely, I want to tell you about another terrific podcast from Slate, The, the Gist. Oh, my God, The Gist. It's hosted by incredibly smart Mike Pesca, whose range of knowledge about things, this and that, up and down, is uh, truly a marvel. It's a podcast about news, culture, whatever else Mike has on his mind, which can be the most wondrous things. He's got lots of great questions, conversations, sideways ways of looking at the world. There's a lot of laughter there, of course, as well. There's a new episode every day. Check out Friday's episode of The Gist featuring an interview with Senator Cory Booker, New Jersey Democrat, who defends his long-shot bill to legalize marijuana and reverse state policies stemming from the war on drugs. Go to Slate.com slash The Gist. And as for Whistle Stop, we'd love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on the iTunes store. We're grateful to those who already have. It helps us spread the word uh, in an increasingly competitive podcast environment. Our producer today is Jocelyn Frank, managing producer June Thomas, and the executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. Our Whistle Stop Cracker Jack researcher is Brian Rosenwald. We wouldn't purge him for anything. He is also one of the editors-in-chief of Made by History, a new Washington Post history section. Whistle Stop is part of the Panoply Network. Our chief content officer of Panoply is Andy Bowers. You can explore the entire roster of podcasts at www.panoply.fm. Until the next time on the Whistle Stop Train, I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Mm-hmm.